Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talk series. In this episode, we hear from Mary Robinson, former President of Ireland and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and now head of the Mary Robinson Foundation for Climate Justice. In conversation with Professor John Sweeney of Maynooth University, Mary discusses climate change, probably the single most important issue facing humanity now. Mary Robinson's first thought talk was recorded at Galway International Arts Festival in July 2019. Now, I hope this is working. Uh, You can hear me okay, that's good. Okay, well, um, first of all, I wanted to welcome Mary because um, Mary is, in a sense, coming home uh, this, this morning to us because she is somebody whose roots lie in the west of Ireland, just a little north of here, uh, in Ballina County, Mayo. So, um, in welcoming you, Mary, I, I wanted to ask you, um, where is home these days for you? And what was it like uh, growing up uh, in the 1960s, I suppose, in, in North Mayo? Well, um, I'm really glad to be back in the west of Ireland always. And I think, you know, I'm defined by growing up in the west of Ireland, growing up in Ballina, looking out on the River Moy and dreaming the way, you know, young people uh, dream and watching the salmon being caught in the nets just below. I could see that from my bedroom. And, uh, you know, um, my brother Henry, who drove us here, who, who lives here in Galway, uh, and myself uh, went to a small school in Ballina called Miss Ruddy's. Uh, the one teacher, well, she had a second teacher towards the end, but mainly it was Miss Ruddy herself. And um, I wrote a memoir some years ago, and I called it Everybody Matters, but I could have called it Long Way from Miss Ruddy's. <laughs> how, how do you know when you're growing up um, in a town, you know, what life will bring or, you know, so uh, I feel very lucky in life, to be honest. And um, you came from a family of medical doctors, of course, as well. Ah, well Both your parents. And, um, I mean, my two elder brothers <laughs> became doctors, but I led my two younger brothers into law. So <laughs> we won out. Well, you, but you're no good at science. <laughs> oh, I have recently received a very important scientific hat. Great. Now, the truth is, no, I, I don't know science, but I've been asked to be one of two patrons of the International Science Council. And as you probably know, John, that was formed last year from an amalgamation of two huge scientific bodies, the International Council for Science and the International Social Science Council. And the fact that they would merge was really very important because it came out in your um, PowerPoint earlier. We have to match the hard science and know that that is non-negotiable with the humanities, with the climate justice, with the gender, with all of that. uh, you know, the reason I was asked and Ismail uh, Sergeldin, who was the librarian of the wonderful library in Alexandria in Egypt, which I visited a number of times, he and I are to kind of talk up the science because some scientists, I exclude you from this, some scientists are very bad at explaining what science is about. And that's one of the problems. So they need people like us to pretend we're scientists and do the explaining, you know. <laughs> that, that's very true, and in fact, one of the, <laughs> one, 
One of the problems of, uh, of the last 10 years has been that sometimes scientists have this tunnel mentality that you can draw a little box, put an arrow in at one end and an arrow at the other end, and A causes B. But they forget to include people, and they forget to include the complications that arise when you put people into the equation. So we do need urgently to uh, add on the social science aspect to the climate message. And I think you're right. I think scientists have failed to convey that message successfully. It's not part of their brief, of course, uh, in a sense. It's part of their brief to publish papers and do research. But you're, you're quite right. I think it's, it's essential that we broaden that message yeah. uh, considerably. But unlike you, John, I, you know, I'm, I'm a latecomer to understanding the importance of climate change. When I say a latecomer, I mean, I served, um, after my term as president, I served for five years as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and I don't remember making a single significant speech because there was another part of the UN dealing with climate, and I was in my silo. Mm -hmm. You know, big organizations deal in silos, which yeah. is a problem. And it wasn't until I went, um, I, I formed a small organization called Realizing Rights to work in African countries on the rights that are most important if you don't have them. The rights to food and safe water, health, education, shelter. And I was honorary president of Oxfam at the time as well. And they would wheel me out and I would travel a lot to different parts of Africa working on health, etc. And I kept hearing this sentence, more or less um, the same all over Africa, things are so much worse now, we don't understand. A lot of women would say to me, we thought God was punishing us, you know, because this was outside their experience. And I wrote about this a lot in the book um, on climate justice. This is a storybook. There are 11 stories, nine of them involve women, and also there are two good men. Um, but, um, <laughs> um, and they're, they're about, um, you know, the shock to poor countries and poor communities who are not responsible and how they became resilient and how they, how they fought back. And my first climate conference was Copenhagen, where it was thought we would solve the problem. And I was shocked. I was genuinely shocked. The conversation, the, the entire discussion was technical. It was small, printy, you know, in the weeds, very scientific at one level and technical. Nothing about people, nothing about human rights, nothing about gender. And that's why I, found, I formed my foundation on climate justice, to be able to argue, to put human rights and gender front and center. And we did that in the Paris Climate Agreement, which I must say, I mean, when I say we, the foundation worked with a whole range of other people, including a great constituency of women, to get gender into the Paris Agreement. But I want to just reflect on the position that I was in during the negotiations before Paris, because I had been appointed by Ban Ki-moon as the special, his special envoy on climate change. And so I was a kind of privileged observer. And I observed, first of all, in September 2015, the negotiations and conclusion of the 2030 agenda with its sustainable development goals. And I'm afraid we don't know nearly enough about that. I mean, I can't see most of the audience because I'd love to ask for hands up of how many people are familiar with the 2030 agenda. <clears throat> yes, lights up. Okay, how many? Okay, I see a reasonable number of hands going up. But actually, we should all be living those sustainable development goals. That's what it's all about. Um, uh, Ireland reported recently in New York, I was there. Ireland was reporting on several of those goals. But nobody knows at home that we're supposed to be complying with them, etc. It's a kind of um, strange um, lack of 
um, a, a proper attention. But the point I want to make is the negotiations and the conclusion of those um, 17 sustainable goals that said we will leave no one behind, we will prioritize the furthest behind first, and we will deal with all these issues and live sustainably. Um, that was clearly voluntary. And then we came towards the Paris Climate Agreement, and I was even more focused on it, and we were told it was a treaty, but it became weaker and weaker, as you remember, John, yeah. as we negotiated. But the small island states and the least developed countries kept pleading. We must have 1.5 degrees, not going above 1.5 degrees in the text, because otherwise we will go under. And there was a mantra in the street in Paris, 1.5 to stay alive. And we did get that newly phrased goal, which was that we must stay well below two degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial standards, the way John explained it. And we, can, we, we have to work at 1.5 degrees. And I thought, and I think most people thought at that stage, this is for the small island states. This is for you know, the poorest countries uh, because they worked so hard to get that into the text. But the scientists had never studied this. And therefore we had to ask, the Paris Climate Agreement asked the world's scientists called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to explain, as John has explained, the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. And if we have to stay at 1.5 degrees, what do we have to do? And as John was explaining, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is very serious. Because that's roughly where the coral reefs, as he said, disappear, where the Arctic ice may go, where the permafrost will melt and send up not just carbon, but methane, far more serious. And then the scientists say, this is looped back and we're, we're very worried. So we should stay, the whole world, scientists said, should stay at not more than 1.5 degrees. And they said it is doable if we have the political will. But what we have to do is we have to reduce by 45% our greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And as John was explaining, and I think your PowerPoint ran out or something, um, the uh, emissions went up last year. And they're going up this year, global emissions. So we're not reducing by 45%. That's the bad news. The very good news is what you also said. We're becoming aware. And we're really now of the view. And a few days ago, I was in New York because governments were reporting about how they were doing under the um, uh, 2030 agenda with the 17 sustainable development goals, including goal 13 on climate change. And I was also there for the launch of a declaration by women. We have decided, women leaders, that the time has come where women actually have to take over. And this declaration was about... Um, and, and it speaks to um, my podcast. Again, uh, do any of you know about my podcast, Mothers of Invention? Can I see a little? Yeah, good, I hear a little... little I think um, the byline of Mothers of Invention is that climate change is a man-made problem and requires a feminist solution. And um, I do it with Maeve Higgins, who's a comedian, and we have great fun together, but we're very serious as well. But we, you know, we, we, we do both. And Maeve will never explain, but I actually explain, because men in particular need to hear this, that man-made is generic, so we're all responsible. And a feminist solution definitely includes men, and the more men, the better. We are seeing more men adopting. What is a feminist solution? It's a solution based on equality, based on fairness, based on recognizing that we have to change from business as usual to a transformational approach or we won't get there. And I think women understand that. We particularly understand it because we're talking about our children and grandchildren. I think it's very true that um, men can't multitask. 
<laughs> and this is a problem which needs multitasking. Yep. And uh, it's very true that uh, women tend to be better multitaskers. I know I'm a useless multitasker. So I think some of what you say echoes with me mm. in the sense that uh, we need a multi-pronged attack on this mm. complex problem. It's what's called a wicked problem by many people. Mm. So, you know, somebody that can see the broader perspective and the angles of attack are crucial. Mary, you mentioned the, the Paris um, Agreement, and I was there for that euphoric um, event yeah. in 2015, yeah. where we thought things were really going to recover from the car crash that was Copenhagen. Um, could you tell us a little about what was going on there behind the scenes in terms of the obstructions that were being placed in terms of what you wanted to get in that agreement uh, as well? Well, in a way, um, it was getting weaker in the negotiations, but China under, uh, under President Xi and uh, the United States under President Obama sort of backed each other and said, we will have an agreement. And then the most important thing in the agreement, as far as I'm concerned, was the goal of staying well below two degrees, working for 1.5 and getting that interpreted. And then, of course, we had a change in politics in the United States with the election of President Trump, who from the beginning said he was going to pull the United States out. And I actually begin this book with being in Marrakesh for the next conference after Paris, and everybody was so depressed because um, President Trump was pulling the United States out. Um, in fact, he can't do that legally because it's a treaty until the 4th of November, 2020. And do you know when the next presidential election is? <laughs> the 3rd of November, 2020. So we'll see. There are a lot of people now in the United States and there's a big coalition called We Are Still In of all kinds of people, including states, cities, business, civil society, women, children, you name it. And they're all keen um, to try and make sure that they keep faith with Paris as much as possible. But um, I, I actually have got to the stage where um, I have three, I have a message of three steps for any audience, any captive audience, and you're captive at the moment as far as I'm concerned. You can't, you can't get out until I tell you your, 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 your message about three steps. And I do want you to take this very seriously. The first step is, Make climate change personal in your life because it's so important. Now, how do you know you're making it personal? By the fact that when you go out the door, you're going to have made up your mind to do something you weren't doing when you came in this morning, meaning something that reduces your own footprint a bit. Um, you may decide to recycle more carefully, be more, you know, turning off more lights, using less water, etc., using less waste, getting rid of waste. Um, um, using public transport. I use the bus all the time now, going in and out of my office in Dublin. I get the free pass, so no problem to me. <laughs> but, um, and we but met I, on the bus. Yes, we met on the bus. John and I met on the bus a few days, about a few weeks ago, and we talked about being here. That's quite right. Um, and, um, so, um, and then I'm a pescatarian. I've given up meat. Um, and that is also trying to signal um, that uh, beef is uh, very much part of an Irish problem because we have a very big focus on beef and milk, and they are very bad on climate. And you know, maybe you want to talk about that, John. Um, it's a sensitive subject for me. Um, but, um, so that's the first step. Do something that is your ownership of the climate issue, because you've got to take ownership of it. It's too important. And then get angry and get active. Get angry with those who have more responsibility and aren't doing enough. And that is governments at all levels um, and all over the world but particularly governments of rich countries, like Ireland. They've got to do more, now we have the plan. That's good, 
maybe bits that aren't as good as you'd like, John, but anyway, at least to have a plan. But everything's going to mean, are we going to implement? And are we going to be more ambitious, which we have to be? And get active, support with your voice, support with your vote, and also support those who are working hard, like the school children who are coming out Fridays for Future, even Extinction Rebellion, because it's disruptive. We need to be disrupted, to be honest. We really do. Um, a bit of disruption would be no harm. And the third step is the most important one of all, and that is that we have to imagine this world that we need to hurry towards. We have, the scientists said last October we have 12 years. Actually, now it's 11 years and we're in July, and we're more than halfway through July. So um, what is this world? It's going to be a much healthier world because we won't have the fumes of fossil fuel that choke up cities, kill people, um, we, we, we'll have to have a much more equal world because the 2030 agenda said leave no one behind. That means we get to the 1 billion people, 1.2 billion. And Nick always wants me to tell about that in old money, as he calls it. 1,200 million people who never switched the switch for electricity. They still light their homes with kerosene and candles, and it's dangerous. Of our world of 7.7 .7 billion or 7.8 billion, 2.3 billion still cook on dirty um, co uh, cooking, um, charcoal, um, wood, animal dung, peat. And um, they have the indoor fumes that kill a large number. These are our moonshots today. We were having a lot of, you know, John F. Kennedy saying, we have to do the hard thing of put a man on the moon and we must do it in eight years. And they did, and they're very proud of it. And we're marking it now 50 years later. We need moonshots to get to those people with clean energy, because then they will take themselves out of the deepest poverty. Secondly, we know, we know that we had um, a bad situation. Is it in 1985 that we learned about the ozone layer? Isn't that right? No, even before that. Yeah. Even before that. 79, probably. Yeah. But we took steps, we and we had the Montreal Protocol. And it became a binding treaty. And even when China was cheating a bit recently, they found that it, they were able to monitor mm -hmm. and um, correct it. Now, um, climate change is much more complicated. It covers much more areas. That's why we need the Sustainable Development Goals. But if we are really serious, which we're beginning to be, we can do it. The scientists said it was doable. If we have the political will, we have to create the political will. And let me just tell you something about the world we need to see. I was lucky enough to see that world. Last November, I went with Nick to Venice because I was invited to the closing of the architectural Biennale in Venice because it was curated by two Irish women architects, Grafton architects. Um, they were friends of, of ours and we were so proud of them, um, Yvonne Farrell and Shelley McNamara. And what they did was they chose the earth as their client and they invited architects from around the world, respond, you know, what does this mean to you as architects? The earth is your client. And literally, we walked through this vast hall with Shelley and Yvonne, and they showed us you know, the circular economy, um, not just individual electric cars, but mobile you know, um, uh, vehicles, buses, you know, um, uh, you know, not looking like buses, but mobile electric um, uh, vehicles, how we would live together in a different way. Even saris from Bangladesh that were discarded by poor women, there was good cloth in part of the sari, retrieved for high fashion. And um, acupuncture architecture by a Chinese architect, a wonderful woman um, who worked in very rural China. And what she did was she and her team would go into a village 
and listen to this poor village, what would make a difference? And I remember one story, it was there was a river going through the village and a broken bridge. Now in a way, you know, architects can fix a bridge, but um, what they found when they listened was if in mending the bridge, there could be a covered part in the middle where both sides could meet, talk, exchange, gossip, trade even, that that would make a huge difference. And that was the kind of aquapuncture architecture. So we need to think and want that world. Whereas a lot of people, you know, and the emphasis is on we have to give up things. We have to stop doing things. And it is true that we have to give up plastic. And I'm glad we don't have single plastic bottles. We have real bottles here in front of us. Um, and, and we're learning now that plastic is really damaging in so many ways that we use far too much of it. But we use far too much stuff anyway. And we're encouraged to buy stuff because that's driving the economy. We have to think about that and we have to find a different way of um, developing um, relationships and using materials. Um, there are people involved in slow fashion. There are people involved in slow food. And, and all of this is to kind of change our ways. And you know, when I was growing up, because I'm an elder now, um, we learned to sew, we learned to darn, we learned to put on buttons. My brothers had hand-me-down clothes. And it wasn't the throwaway society that we've become. We don't need that to have a good life and to have a happy life. If we can you know, rethink, and that's why I think at all levels, if we want to change behavior, who changes behavior in the family? Come on. <laughs> Women. <laughs> <laughs> In getting to that future, um, it's not easy. Uh, the world, even since Paris, has changed yeah. so much. Yeah. We have the growth of populism. Yeah. We have an expansion of neoliberalism, which kind of run counter yeah. to the ideals of multilateralism, which you have always espoused through your life. Can individuals make a difference? Can individuals uh, acting co coherently together in, as the young people are at the moment, as Extinction Rebellion, for example, is at the moment, can they change, uh, can they be an equal force, if you like, to the very powerful vested interests that lie ahead? Well, first of all, I do agree with you. This is a very bumpy time. Mm. Far too much populism, um, nativism, um, my country firstism, um, which is not good. I mean, the reason we got those two great frameworks in 2015 is because um, we had the diplomatic push for it. And we had a president of the United States and a president of China who came together and said, we need to have this agreement. And then everybody else was influenced and we, and we got that um, agreement. Um, the point I'm really making about the, 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 the voluntary nature of the 2015 agreement, um, the uh, 2030 agenda and the Paris Climate Agreement is that science has now made them no longer voluntary. It's science that's kicking in. And not just that report that I mentioned of last October, but look at the report in May about biodiversity, that a million species could become extinct. And you know, already we're very worried about the extinction of species. And David Attenborough has been speaking about this, and now he's linking it with climate and is a powerful voice and a trusted voice in speaking about it. And that's really very important. Um, can the people, you know, a population influence? I think yes, because I noticed when I was in Copenhagen and then successive cl climate conferences that the ministers who came from developed countries, including Ireland, came with no pressure from home because nobody knew they were there. Mm -hmm. Nobody even knew they were there or cared what they were doing. So they could, you know, agree or not agree, whatever they wanted to. The only ones who cared were the presidents of small island states who were sweating to try and move the agenda along. 
the, the, smart, the poorest African countries, uh, indigenous communities, the indigenous platform, literally pressing, pressing, and they're still doing it at every COP. But if we can get a mobile population pressurizing more, you know, so that politicians know this now is top of the agenda, and it has to be, it must be, and we must have more transformative change, then I think that will make a difference. And the good thing is, I mean, I just, I watched Greta Thunberg, I got a photo of her as a tiny 15-year-old outside her Swedish parliament with this handwritten sign. And I thought, oh my God, that's interesting. I had no idea that she'd become a kind of superstar. And the great thing about her, which I love, is that she has made it very positive that she has Asperger's. So she has done more for Asperger's and autism, as well as for awareness of climate change. And to be 16 years old and have achieved that is quite something. You know, I mean, and, and it's great that children in Galway, children in Dublin, children all over Ireland are now deciding Fridays for Future. And I hope they're getting support from teachers because they're learning far more <coughs> by being aware because they're right. They are not protected. They are, they are no, they're not guaranteed a safe future. Um, I happen to have these six grandchildren. Who, uh, the eldest is 15, Rory. He's in the, the beginning of the book. And, you know, those grandchildren will be in their 30s and 40s in 2050. So I think about it a lot. More than half their life to lead, hopefully, if they're lucky enough to be alive and in good health. And they will share the world with at least 9 billion. People think now 9.5 billion people. Um, at the moment, we have 7.7 .7 or 8 billion. It's a huge increase that's built in now. Um, if we would do the right thing, we can reduce that curve in the future. All we have to do is educate girls and women and have health systems that work and you know, provide the contraceptives to the 200 million women in the world who want family planning devices and are prevented by bad policies or, or poverty from getting them. So, you know, it, um, we, we, we really have um, uh, a situation where more and more of us don't talk about climate change now, we talk about climate crisis. And I always talk about climate justice, and I always talk about hope, because that is really important. And I think children are the great white hope. I mean, those of you who are parents will know the power of what we call pester power. Um, you know, when uh, the, the green school's child comes home and tells you you shouldn't be doing that or you should be doing it another way. Uh, and that is, I think, the, the, they are the cavalry on the hill waiting to come and rescue us. And we have to foster them as much as we can. And I think what Mary's saying is very true, that we need leadership to push from above in the multinational and UN, UN sectors, uh, emphasizing the SDGs, but we also need people to push from below to sensitize our own decision makers. This is a priority for us, and we will not vote for you unless you prioritize it for us. So I think that's the squeeze that's so important. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you before I turn things loose to the audience um, is your new role now as chair of the elders. Congratulations on that. It's a, it's a great honor. And, um, Maybe you could tell us a little about those and where their influence is going to be felt in the next few years. Well, first of all, very big shoes to fill. Uh, when we were formed in 2007, when Nelson Mandela um, brought us together, actually yesterday, um, uh, 20, uh, 2007, and now we're 2019, so 12 years ago, because um, yesterday was, um, the 18th, sorry, the day before yesterday, was Mandela's um, day now, but it was his birthday, and it was on his 89th birthday. 
that he formed the elders. We'd had a planning meeting with him before that in May um, of 2007. And um, Archbishop Tutu was our first chair. And then Kofi Annan took over the chair when Arch, uh, as we were always encouraged to call him, he had a T-shirt which was, call me Arch, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, um, Kofi Annan succeeded him. And then I was with Kofi Annan for his last mission in Zimbabwe. Um, this time last year, we were there. Um, and he was pushing himself. He wasn't feeling well. And he got pneumonia um, on the way on the flight back to Geneva, and he never recovered. You know, he, he, he died shortly after that. Um, um, the elders um, have, I suppose, three overarching priorities. And the first is the one that you mentioned, multilateralism. You know, the importance of a world that can speak together and solve problems together. Because the problems are problems we cannot solve as individual countries. And they are the problems, um, uh, the, the next things are the two ex existential threats that we worry about. Nuclear disarmament, nuclear non-proliferation, it's going the wrong way. And uh, we're seeing the unraveling of existing nuclear treaties. We're seeing rearming of nuclear missiles. It is very, very worrying. And this doomsday clock is nearer to doomsday than it's ever been. Um, so, you know, that, that's frightening. And secondly, climate change. Climate change is an existential threat because you saw what John was showing. We're in danger of making ourselves extinct, making other species extinct. We're on the road to it unless we change, and we're on the road to making life very difficult to live for those born today and their children and grandchildren. So, um, you know, I, I think that's um, why the elders are very active at the moment. Um, we had a discussion in the Security Council. Uh, I was addressing Security Council with Ban Ki-moon. Ban Ki-moon, who gave me three mandates in his day and was my boss, is now, I'm his boss, because he's my deputy. Um, he's, um, um, Ban Ki-moon and Grasse Michel are two deputy chairs, and we have now 11 elders. We, 12 is probably the maximum number. We're looking for a replacement for Jimmy Carter, a wonderful, wonderful um, former president, but president, former president, um, Nobel Prize winner, etc. And we'd like an American, but we're kind of scratching around at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we'll find one. And, and we do try to keep a gender balance also in the elders. Um, and uh, we, we were in China not very long ago and had a meeting with President Xi and his team across the table, I'm glad to say, because there were um, five of us as elders and President Xi and his top brass in China um, for more than an hour and a quarter. And talking very much about both nuclear issue um, and trying to get China to be more involved in, what, in the fact that Russia and the United States aren't talking and are more and more moving away from even the agreements they have and the START treaty that's coming up and the nuclear non-proliferation treaty that will be discussed again. You know, it's, it's, it's very worrying. Uh, they weren't willing to engage there. They, you know, they said, we, we will respond accordingly, meaning... We'll, we'll build more missiles, probably. Um, and, um, but on climate, they were actually, I mean, what we were saying was, would China do a bit more? Mm -hmm. um, because China has, you know, it has kind of met its commitments. I mean, you, you know this better than I do, John, but more or less met its commitments under the Paris Agreement because it didn't overcommit. Mm -hmm. um, my impression of China is it commits and, un, and implements, mm -hmm. but it doesn't commit enough. It could commit more. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we were trying to persuade it. Great. Well, you've regaled us with your breadth of international affairs here, ranging so widely from nuclear disarmament to climate. 
Um, but I think it's an opportunity now for, for you, the audience, to maybe pick up on maybe things that we've missed here uh, and uh, have the opportunity to ask Mary questions. Thank you for listening to First Thought. To watch the Q&A with Mary Robinson and for more First Thought talks, visit the talk section and Galway International Arts Festival's website on giaf.ie.